Today on Ag News Daily. We frequently find ourselves as the target of retaliation because we're a perishable commodity. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It is Mike Pearson here on this Friday edition of the Ag News Daily Podcast, and I am joined by co-host Delaney Howell. Delaney, how you doing? I'm pretty good, Mike. What do you think? Do you think we're going to get some snow this weekend? You know, I'm not even going to think about it. I'm going <laughs> to soak up as much sun as I possibly can mm-hmm. today. It is halfway decent outside. But I'll tell you what, I was watching on Twitter, and uh, some of our friends in, in Illinois were getting like seven, eight inches Ugh. yesterday. Just yeah, the tail end of a low that wrapped around and just kind of dumped on them all day mm-hmm. right through the, oh, I suppose, central southern part of the state. I just looked at the weather forecast. It looks like maybe tomorrow we might get some snow. Oh, well, this is the kind of thing that happens in wintertime, Delaney. It shouldn't be all that terribly shocking. It seems to come around just about every year <laughs> around about this time. Um, Actually, though, looking at the 10-day forecast, Thanksgiving and uh, Black Friday, they're going to be like high 40s, low 50s. Well, there we go. Now, Delaney, you mentioned Thanksgiving is coming Mm -hmm. up next Thursday. We are less than a week, folks, from Thanksgiving, which, of course, means then one week from today, it is Black Friday, historically Mm -hmm. the day that Americans go out. They rush to the store at the crack of dawn and load up on deals, and it puts retailers' margins in the black, hence the name. Are you a Black Friday shopper? Yes, I'm an avid Black Friday shopper. All right. What are the hot deals? What do we need to know about? Um, I don't know. I haven't looked through any of the the things yet, the uh, brochures or whatever you want to call them, the ads. Usually I look at them Thanksgiving during lunch or after lunch is over. Okay. All right. So you've got Thanksgiving lunch. You don't do Thanksgiving dinner. Yes, that's correct. So then isn't your lunch dinner? Yeah, actually, I was debating this with a friend. So I looked up the definition of dinner one day because we were arguing whether dinner is at a specific time of day. And the, uh, yeah, that's right. The dinner is actually just whatever meal is your biggest meal. So my question is, could breakfast be considered dinner if that's your biggest meal for the day? Absolutely. If you're loading up in the morning, that's dinner time. All right. Well, there you have it then. Yeah. Brinner, right? Brinner. Brunch. Oh. Well, no. Brinner, because it's uh, breakfast and dinner, but usually that's when you have pancakes and eggs and so forth in the evening. You have brinner, Mm -hmm. as opposed to brunch, which is breakfast and lunch. Now, what is your favorite brunch food, Delaney? Uh, Is mimosas an option? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Absolutely. Probably French toast, pancakes, or a little biscuits and gravy. So breakfast is your favorite part of brunch. Yeah. Or, gotcha. I don't know, a good uh, good roast or a good prime rib. That could yes. also do me in. Yep. I prefer the lunch portion of the mm-hmm. brunch dinner, the brunch meal, which would be, like you say, that prime rib. Sometimes at very fancy places they'll have seafood options, yeah. you know, your shrimps and your, uh, your various – Yes, other creatures of the sea, creatures from the deep, I suppose, and that's typically my favorite. I'm not a big breakfast person. I I love breakfast. Well, good, but it is past breakfast time for most of us. I assume you've been up a little bit now, Delaney. Yes, I have. Good for you. What's the news we've got to talk about before we get into our interview for the day? 
All right. Where to start for today? Actually, I know where I want to start for today. Talking a little bit about the trade aid package, or as we refer to it, the uh, farmer assistance bailout package. So far, the USDA has paid out $840 million in aid. They said that most of those, most of that has gone to soybeans, wheat, corn, dairy, and hogs. And the five states that have received the highest amount so far have been Illinois, Iowa, Kansas, Indiana, and Minnesota. And Mike, December is right around the corner, and that is really the next time when we are going to see if USDA is doing a second tranche of payments and what that second round could look like. Absolutely. And I would say growers, we've paid out $837 million of $12 billion. If you haven't gotten your records, and I know some folks are, are still trying to wrap up harvest as we mm-hmm. get into this snowy time of year, but if you haven't taken your records into your FSA office, your current year production records, do that. I mean, this is this is free money your taxpayer dollars have already paid for to help you bounce back a little bit after these tariffs. All the indications we've heard from producers uh, make it sound like it isn't a terribly uh, awkward process. Right to get these dollars. So we still have about $11 billion left to pay out from that first tranche. And then, as Delaney mentioned here in the next couple of weeks, we'll probably get firmer details well, on what to expect with the second. Don't forget, though, that that $12 billion isn't all going to farmers. Some of it's going to SNAP. Some of it's going to develop foreign trade, etc. So I think, I think, if I remember correctly, like half of that was going directly to producers. Oh, see, I thought that $12 billion was the portion that was going to producers, no. but you, you you were probably correct on that. Yep. It was $12 billion total. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Still, there's a lot of money sitting on yes. the table. Growers, get out there and get yours. That's what it's yeah. all about. Actually, uh, one other quick thing I want to mention. Today, I think, is the last day that folks can sign up for hurricane and wildfire assistance from the USDA. Yep, today, Friday the 16th. So hopefully if folks are listening, they uh, can go sign up with their FSA offices, but you probably should have done it before now. Yeah, but, you know, it's all about making sure that uh, you know what the damages are and, yeah, tough, tough deal. Mm -hmm. Well, I've got an update here. Delaney, do you watch a lot of cable TV? No. Okay. Have you ever seen the Diesel Brothers on Discovery? No. Oh, it's a cool show. It's these, uh, I don't know if they're actually real brothers, but they're guys that, that modify uh, vehicles and they turn them into giant diesel-powered machines. And I kind of want to take the Lincoln down to them and have them put a, you know, a 7.3 Ford, you know, diesel engine in there. But anyway, uh, very cool show. They had partnered with Minnesota Soybean last year to build a six-wheel drive I think it was a Dodge Ram pickup powered by diesel, soy biodiesel, of course. Now we've got an update from New Holland that uh, they have formed a, quote, year-long strategic relationship with Dave Sparks, one of the diesel brothers who's known as Heavy D, and he is going to be using New Holland ag and construction equipment at his shop, at his new home construction site. So pretty sweet, pretty sweet gig for him and did his uh, land development project in Great Salt Lake. So there's going, mm. probably going to be, for our listeners who do watch the show, you'll see a lot more New Holland equipment running around when they're doing shots in the shop there. I thought that was kind of cool. Interesting. Well, you said that was happening in Minnesota, right, Mike? 
That was happening in Salt Lake last oh, okay. year. They partnered with Minnesota. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Well, I've got some Minnesota news. I don't have a good transition other than that. Um, Mike, do you are you familiar with the Schwann's Food Company? I love Schwann's Food. I That's know, what we subsisted too. on as a kid. <laughs> yeah, me too, because it would be easy. Like if we had sports practice or FFA or something, we'd just go home and like pop in a frozen pizza. Yeah, or if mom was gone, dad would get the little <laughs> chicken packages that came wrapped in, or yep. chicken sandwiches yep. that came wrapped in cellophane and popped those puppies in the microwave. Well, Swans has sold to a South Korean company for $1.8 billion. Ooh. They've sold off an 80% stake in their company. So Swans will retain, the Swan family will retain 20% ownership of the business. Good news though. They're going to retain 100% ownership of the Swan's home service. So the home delivery business will still be a go. Interesting. So the South Korean company basically bought their frozen and prepackaged food mm-hmm. portions of the business? Yep, that's what it sounds like. Ah, well, there you go. You'll continue to have uh, Schwann's home delivery. Yeah, that I was, was just really nervous when I read that it was sold to a South Korean company because I love Swan's food. Yeah, I remember it was always like Christmas when that Schwann's truck would pull in the driveway. <laughs> oh, yeah. And if things had been good on the farm or, if, you know, if mm-hmm. Dad had had a good week at work, occasionally we'd splurge and we'd get those silver mint ice cream bars. Oh, my gosh. I could go for one of those right now. I know. So maybe with this purchase, maybe we'll find them in more, you know, grocery stores. Maybe. Ooh, I haven't, so good. I haven't seen a Schwann's man here at our farm in ages. Yeah. I don't know and if I'm they come to lot. apartments, so... No. All right. Well, folks, stay tuned. If you're a Schwann's fan, (laughs) maybe we'll have more access to Schwann's foods going forward. Well, one thing we won't have more access to or could potentially have less access to, maybe that's not a great segue, but Green Plains, which is the fourth largest ethanol producer, has permanently shut down a Virginia production plant and they've cut output at several other major facilities because they're trying to basically reduce the supply gut glut that we've seen in the biofuel industry. Yeah, and you know, this is that time of year where we do see those shutdowns. We're about the farthest we can get from the heavy driving season of summer. All those plants require maintenance. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not unexpected, but I think that plant in Virginia was kind of a shock. Yeah, they've um, cut down production in Plans in Superior, Iowa, Atkinson, Nebraska, Madison, Illinois, and Fairmont, Minnesota. Mm, all right. Well, folks, get out there. Burn that E15. Burn that E85. Always be burning E10 whenever you can because it, we need all the demand we can get, frankly. Yeah, we absolutely do. Speaking of all the demand we can get, we need the same thing on the cotton front. Of course, cotton, like the pecan industry we talked about yesterday, was decimated by hurricanes this year. However, in spite of that, we are not seeing a whole lot of increased pricing. In the November report, USDA lowered U.S. uh, cotton mill use by 100,000 bales. They dropped it down to 3.3 million. And exports were lowered 500,000 bales from the October report to 15 million even. This means that we've lost 18.3 million bales over what the USDA had anticipated. And currently we have a cotton ending stocks to use ratio of 23.5%. Woof. Say that one more time. We have a Stocks to ending ratio of what? Ending stocks to use ratio of 23.5%. Mm-hmm. Is that good? Uh, no. 
Okay. No. <laughs> Typically, the lower the stocks to use ratio, yeah. the higher the prices, or at least the stronger right. the prices. Would I guess be. I just and, don't know what the normal stocks to use ratio is for cotton. Well, let's see. I think I can put this into a little bit of perspective for you. Okay. In the November report, 1819 world production, the estimate was lowered uh, just a little over 2 million bales. And world mill use was lowered 880,000 bales. World ending stocks are projected to be 72.61 million bales for a stocks-to-use ratio of 57.2%. So 23.5% isn't great, but it's better than the global perspective. Yeah, and I think that that's why cotton producers haven't seen a bounce in prices, even with all the hurricane and condition and weather issues that we've had. That's not That doesn't bode well for the markets as a whole. No, I mean, we've been trudging around here in the $70 range for quite some time, and it doesn't look like there's any news here that's going to burst us out of that anytime soon. I would say not. Well, speaking of bursting, Delaney, you know I like to eat until I am practically (laughs) bursting. Yes. And the American Medical Association made an announcement earlier this week. They want to create front-of-package food label warnings. And uh, they want these nutrition facts to be right on the front of food products. They want it to include, uh, and really the big one for ag, is the amount of added sugars. They want this front and center, kind of like the uh, Surgeon General's warning is on cigarettes. And as you can imagine, the Sugar Association is pretty frustrated with this. Mm -hmm. They say, quote, the new nutrition facts label will now include added sugars, giving consumers the access to the amount of added sugars in each serving of a food or beverage they need in order to follow the dietary guidelines. Uh, Taking things a step further to include a warning label does nothing but mislead consumers because it's not an idea grounded in science and does not support FDA's rationale for setting the daily value in the first place. So they are going to fight this proposal here from the American Medical Association. And I would imagine, corn growers, we need to be paying attention to this as well because added sugars would include high fructose corn mm-hmm. syrup, which is a sweetening agent used in, you know, darn near everything. Right. I feel like there's a little science behind that. Well, but it's it's a warning, basically it's the warning that doesn't correspond with the FDA's existing guidelines. That's what they're frustrated with. If they want to include added sugars, okay, you know, that's scientific. We know what sugars have been added, but don't put a warning on there. I mean, don't eat too much sugar, people. If you eat a bunch of crap and you don't work out, you get fat. This is science. We can all agree to that. If you stuff your face with Butterfinger bars rather than, say, wholesome bacon and ribeyes, you're probably going to get fat. Well, bacon's maybe not the best choice either if you're trying to avoid getting fat, but yeah. No, bacon is good for you. It's got high of the good kind of fat, the fat that your body is used to accepting, and it fills you up. It maintains your sense of fullness due to its protein content throughout the day, and it puts a delicious smell in the house. (laughs) I just cooked bacon this morning, so it smells like it in here. Yep, and you'll be able to smell it now for a week. (laughs) I know, no kidding. Um, Speaking of bacon and pork, we've got some new numbers here from the USDA. They released a report just on Thursday showing the outlook for, well, all commodities, but specifically the pork numbers are what jumped out to me. New numbers, because of the tariffs, are indicating that they've taken a toll definitely on U.S. pork 
And American pork exports to Mexico dropped 10% in September when compared to 2017, September of 2017. And exports to China sank even more drastically by 33% in that month. Uh, the report also showed that exports to the two countries dropped on a quarterly basis and shipments to Mexico were off about 5.6% in the third quarter and by nearly 29% to China. Wow. Those are those are big numbers especially yeah. when we're looking at that China number. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, speaking of Chinese pork, Delaney, I don't think we have had an African swine fever headline this week, uh, have we? Actually, I just read one this morning. Um I'm trying to think the provenance was Shuan Shiku, I don't know how to say it. Uh, okay. but it is the largest pork producing province in China, and they've just had their first uh, case confirmed now. Gotcha. Well, that wouldn't be Szechuan because they're known for chicken, right? Right. I can't remember Szechuan how you. Chicken. I, I just made that up. That was a Chinese oh, restaurant joke. I gotcha. Yeah. No, it was like S I C H U A N. How would you pronounce that? Szechuan? Yeah. I don't know. I have no idea. I don't if you know keep going, it's going to get, uh, we'll, we'll probably both get fired. <laughs> we'll fire ourselves. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, so, you know, and that could turn around those uh, those Chinese pork import numbers real quick if that continues to spread yeah. now that it's in the, the largest pork producing region. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, Delaney, I'm all out of news. What do you say? Why don't you tell us who we're going to be chatting with for our interview today? Uh, let's see. So today we're going to be talking to Jim Baer, who is the CEO and president for the National or the U.S. Apple Growers Association. Ooh, fantastic. I had a delicious yeah. apple with peanut butter for lunch today. Good. That's very healthy of you. I know. I know. It was mostly peanut butter. Oh, well, at least you're trying, I feel like, with that. I was just using the apple as an edible spoon. (laughs) Okay, great. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's take a look at the markets. We weren't able to really carry all of yesterday's strength in the grains today, but we did have a bit of an uptick in the soybean market. Let's dive into those numbers. And remember, folks, our dive is enabled because of our great friends over at the Zaner Group. Give them a shout. Let them go to work for you in protecting and managing some of your marketing risk. You can reach out to them at 312 or visit them on the web at zaner.com. And a little bit of weakness today as we start in the corn market. The East corn contract was down two and three quarter cents at 364 and three quarters, with the March down two and a half to finish at 375 and three quarters. Slight gains in the soybean contract. January was up three and a half on the day at 8.92 and a quarter. The March was also up three and a half to close at 9.05 and three quarters. In Chicago wheat, the December contract was up one and a quarter at 5.06 and three quarters, with the March up half a cent to finish at 5.15 and a quarter. Looking over to the world of livestock and live cattle, the December contract was up 20 cents at 115.35. February closed higher by 62 and a half cents to finish at 119.72.50. And weakness in feeder cattle. The January contract down at dollar 32 and a half at 146.52.50. The March down 57.50 to close at 143.97 and a half. And in lean hogs, limit up in the December contract up the daily $3 trading limit at $60.7.5 with February also 
Limit up on the day to close at 66.75. Quick look over at the dairy market in Class 3 milk. The November contract was up two cents at 14.58, with the December down four to finish at 14.84. Without further ado, let's talk apples with Delaney Howell at the NAFB annual conference. All right, we've talked about onions. Now we're going to talk about apples. I'm with Jim Baird, who is the president and CEO of the U.S. Apple Association. Jim, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. Sure, Delaney. Happy to be with you. So tell me about apples. What's, I mean, I don't really know a lot about apples. I'm from a corn and soybean state. What's apple production like in the U.S.? Well, I'm from a corn and soybean state myself, and I'll tell you some of the things that I've learned about apples since coming to the industry that, that I found fascinating and maybe you'll find interesting. Uh, apples are not native to the United States. Crab apples are the only apple that's native to the U.S. The apple that we eat originated in Kazakhstan, of all places. But apple seedlings came over on the Mayflower and, and, uh, and were planted near what is now Boston uh, several hundred years ago. And so it has grown to become... Uh, America's favorite fruit and our most valuable specialty crop. The farm gate value of the U.S. apple crop each year is about $5 billion. And when you include the downstream economic activity of, of packing and shipping and uh, uh, vendor suppliers and so forth, it's about a $15 billion a year industry. Uh, I know you, being located in central Iowa, you might be interested that uh, the Red Delicious Apple, which uh, until 2018 was the most widely grown and consumed apple in the history of the world, and it was first discovered in a farmer's field near Winterset, Iowa. And we announced in August of 2018 that for the first time in more than half a century, the Red Delicious Apple is no longer the most popular apple in the United States. It's been replaced by the Gala Apple. Now, the Red Delicious will always continue to be important as an export apple. Uh, it's, it travels well. It's a sturdy apple, and we export all over the world. We export a third of our crop. We ship as far away as India, South Africa, Israel, the Middle East, and all through uh, Asia, and Mexico is our number one market. Has the apple industry been impacted? I'm sure it has by uh, the USMCA agreement. It is. We're glad that the free trade agreement with Mexico and Canada was concluded um, so far on just kind of a handshake basis. So we're anxious to see Congress uh, ratify the agreement when they come back in uh, 2019. And then uh, we also are calling on the administration to remove the Section 232 tariffs on steel and aluminum because so long as those tariffs are in place, the free trade agreement with Mexico and Canada cannot be successful because there will still be retaliating against the U.S. apple uh, industry. And we, we frequently find ourselves as the target of retaliation because we're a perishable commodity. And, for example, you know, corn or soybeans or other row crops, uh, you'd prefer not to have to store them for two years or three years, but you could if you had to. We cannot do that with a perishable commodity like apples. And and our competitors know that, so they frequently like to retaliate against us because they know that we can't store our crop forever. Yeah, I mean, that makes complete sense and, and probably not one that people think about when they think about agriculture commodities that have been impacted by trade. As far as the other trade uh, that's going on right now, China, uh, India, etc., how are trade relations with those impacting the apple growers? 
Similar story there, Delaney. Uh, India, which had for many years been our number three export market behind Canada, earlier this year uh, passed Canada and was exploding as a market. It was a, a steep curve, really exciting, and that was in despite of the 50% tariffs that already existed. They've announced an additional 25% tariff in, as a result of the the U.S. tariffs on steel and aluminum. So the tariffs there will be 75%. That's obviously going to have an impact. And then China, which is is uh, was a real bright spot for us. We just got that market open in May of 2015. It's now free access in both directions for apples within the U.S. and China. Very few Chinese apples are coming to the United States. Contrast that with China growing from uh, zero in May of 2015 to May of 2018, they were our number five largest export market, and importantly, they were, grow they were purchasing the premium quality apple varieties that you would see in your grocery store, and they were paying top prices to get it. So that was a really good news story that's probably dimming, and we'll see what the impact is going to be shortly. Asia and China specifically, their apple purchases are really focused around the Chinese New Year uh, in January, and so, you know, if I was to come visit you, uh, if you lived in uh, in China or, or Southeast Asia, I would bring you an apple as a gesture of, of good health and friendship, and that's a that's a very common thing. And so, if we miss the Chinese New Year market, then we got to wait a whole another 12 months to do it again. And so, we're really nervous about that market, and we hope that things settle down and we can get back to doing what U.S. agriculture does best, which is shipping the bounty of our our uh, productivity all over the world. Absolutely. Okay, so break down pricing for me, because corn and soybeans, wheat, they're traded on the commodities market. You uh, futures contract, you buy it per bushel or whatever. How do you sell and buy apples? That's a curious uh, question and a curious response to it. Uh, we don't have futures markets, and so unlike grains, for example, where anywhere on the planet you know what the price of a bushel of wheat or corn or soybeans is on a minute-by-minute -minute basis. Uh, that's not true in apples, and so it's generally just negotiated privately, and so market intel and market intel gathering becomes super important, and so if, if you are either the buyer of in some export market or you're the produce buyer for a large supermarket chain here in the U.S., you know that you have to have apples in your store and there's a reason why when you walk into a grocery store the first thing you see is always the produce section because it's colorful and uh, it's it's uh, exciting people look and they say oh my gosh the, the new apples are in or the new strawberries or whatever so it gets people in the mood to buy and so apple I mean uh, supermarkets know that they have to have a well-stocked and colorful and plentiful produce aisle and apples are always the center of that and so they know what they need, and they go out and just negotiate it privately. So it, it is a, you're right, it's an absolutely unusual thing with respect to every other agricultural commodity, but that's how we do it. Interesting. So obviously apples are very perishable, as you mentioned. What's the shelf life for a typical apple? Well, you should always store your apples in the refrigerator. Uh, when a grower of a commercial orchard harvest their apples, they go into cold storage in a big, big room, say the size of a high school gymnasium, and the temperature gets dropped down to about 33 degrees, and then they 
will seal the doors and suck the oxygen out. So the apples, we say they take a little nap. I mean, they literally, they kind of go to sleep. And so that's why you can bring an apple, you can buy an apple in May, and it's going to taste almost identical to an apple that you might have gone out and picked with your family in October. Uh, but once you take them out of that controlled atmosphere storage, obviously they, they won't last forever. But if you keep them in your refrigerator, they'll last several weeks. And we tell people, take your apples home, just wash them off when they're cold tap water. You don't need soap or anything else. Uh, uh, they were clean when they left the packing facility. We can't speak for what happens, you know, in the grocery store when people are doing their shopping. So rinse them off under tap water and enjoy. How do you pick the perfect apple at the grocery store? Well, that will depend on what you're looking for, and that's kind of an exciting and fun part of being in the apple industry, Delaney, is that everybody has a favorite, and everybody, there's an apple for every palate. And some people like the tartness of a Granny Smith apple. Some people like a sweet apple, and there's something everywhere in between. We're a big tent. We've got an apple for everybody, and... Uh, Part of the sort of the excitement and the positive story that we have is is that, and no other commodity has that. You know, a, a different taste profile for, that suits everybody. So really, part of the fun is experimentation and trying something, and then once you find what you like, you know, tell everybody about it. And, and people get really emotional. I mean, they will talk to me when they find out what I do. They're like, "Oh my gosh, my family, we love apples, and we buy fill in the blank." You know, they want me to know what their favorite apple is. Or they have a story about the apple pie that their mom or their grandma made. Oh, my mom, she swore by, you know, this particular apple for apple pie. And and her apple pies were the best. Well, everybody's ap- mom's apple pie was the best, right? And uh, so it's, it's I, I go on and on about it, but it really is a cool thing that everybody has such a strong emotional attachment to, to apples, apple pie, whatever. And I, I'm, frankly, I love being a part of it. Yeah, that's very interesting. So let's talk about the U.S. Apple Association. What are you guys doing? Are you doing consumer outreach? Are you working with producers? Is it like a commodity organization like corn growers? It is. We have uh, 7,500 growers in the United States. And they have sort of like a, a checkoff, but it's it's a it's an assessment, and, and from the major producing states of Washington, New York, Michigan, Pennsylvania, California, Virginia, uh, and so that money comes to us, and we use it for advocacy in Washington D.C. Whether it's the Farm Bill or trying to get the trade laws, um, you know, trade situation calmed down, uh, and we also do consumer outreach. I mean, that excitement that I described also translates into people having questions and they want to know, should I wash my apples? So we just, within the last few days, we just put on our website a big a big box that says, what about washing my apples? There's a lot of misunderstanding and misinformation out there about the safety of produce. And it's true, not just of apples, but of all agricultural commodities. Uh, so we're trying to meet people where they are and, and uh, anticipate their questions about food safety and, and give calming and reassuring information that helps people do what they want to do, which is just to, they just want to enjoy the foods that they've always enjoyed. And we kind of like to look at it like they just need permission. And we're giving them permission to, to buy and enjoy U.S. apples. Yeah, that makes sense. 
Last question for you, Jim. What are some big things that the U.S. Apple Association is working on, either from a trade standpoint or from a producer or consumer standpoint? Well, we'd like to expand our overseas markets. Right now, we're not shipping to Japan, Korea, Taiwan. Those should be natural markets for us. So while the markets that we currently are in and have been in for years and working very hard to develop, that's a little unsettled, that picture is right now. And so we're trying to work through our state affiliates to um, identify those markets and encouraging our policymakers in Washington, D.C. to work on reciprocal trade agreements with you know, Japan and Taiwan and Korea would be three great markets. We're not shipping there now, and we should be, frankly, and we hope that something can, can uh, happen there very soon to open those markets for us. All right. Well, thank you so much for filling me in about apples. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thanks for the interest, Delaney. Well, thanks again to Jim Bayer. He's actually, we uh, had a discussion afterwards. He's actually an Iowa boy. Oh, good for him. He sounded yeah. smart. I could tell. Smarter <laughs> than the average bear. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's see what good. I, see what I did there? Yeah, see what I did? Yeah, I see. I see what you did. Good job. Yeah. Proud of you. Folks, for this kind of clever repartee, you can get all of it by listening to our past episodes on our new home at the Global Ag Network. Just visit globalagnetwork.com, click on About the Network, learn about all the other podcasts that are that are joining this network and becoming a part of the next wave of agricultural media. There's a ton of great folks on there, including all of our past episodes. Or you can interact with us on social media via Facebook or Twitter. Just search for Ag News Daily. And with that, Delaney, what do you say? Should we let the folks go? Let's let him go.